Um, so let's uh, pray right now for Annie as she gets ready to speak to us um, on a challenging passage. Father God, we are thankful for your presence here with us today. We're thankful that you're with Annie, that you've been with her. She studied this passage. And we pray for her as she gives uh, what she's learned to us. As she delivers it, we pray for um, just clarity of her uh, speaking with us. Help us to have our hearts open to receive what she has to offer us this morning from your word. We thank you for your word, for the joy and hope that it brings. And uh, pray that uh, we would all be receiving it well with joy this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. How's that? Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty loud, so usually not an issue. You guys have probably heard me make this joke before, but my mom always said that I should be an opera singer when I grew up. Not because I have any musical talent, but because I'm so loud. She was like, you can really project. So you, you should just like, she thought it would be so funny to see this little person in a the theater just like <laughs> belting it out. But you would not actually want me to sing anything, let alone opera. Um, okay, so woo, here we are. Um, James Boyce, the pastor and author, um, on his commentary in Romans, wrote 14 chapters. 14 chapters on this section that I get to cover today. Um, so fortunately for you, I'm not a trained theologian. I have um, not been to seminary. So you're going to get the Annie 10-page version, not the James Boyce 130-page version. Um, so I'm going to just tell you, you know, layperson's view, what I have learned and um, yeah, what I've, I've gleaned in my study. Um, but there's still a lot to cover here. So I want to just name that I actually really enjoy a good wrestle with a challenging topic. Um, and I think it's worthwhile for all of us to do, number one, because this is in God's word and therefore it's useful for all life and godliness. Um, and number two, even though this topic and these things can sort of seem esoteric out there, hard to grasp, I do think there's actually like really important practical application for us from today's text. Um, and I, the good news is I think this application is really comforting. Um, I think that Romans 9 is intended to give us confidence in God, that God's promises are always true, that his character is always good. And so hopefully I will convince you of that this morning. Just a heads up that I will quote Tim Keller often. Um, I just think his way of explaining things was the most uh, accessible and it really made sense to me. So <laughs> I uh, will start with reading the first five verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So Paul starts us off here in chapter 9 with a cry of compassion for his, his own people. Paul's Jewish. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, as he says in his um, 
kind of resume in Philippians 3. And he clearly has a deep concern for the people of Israel, who as a whole at this point have rejected Christ as Messiah. Paul gives us a picture of what it looks like to really long for another to come to faith. He even goes as far as to say that he would swap his salvation for theirs. Now, I don't think Paul thinks that God actually works that way, but he is using this as a way to express the depth of his grief um, that he longs for the people of Israel to understand the truth of who Christ is. This people who he loves have rejected the beauty of God fulfilling his promises to them in the person of Jesus. He then anticipates a question. Since all of Israel doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, does this mean that God had failed him? God promised to redeem Israel. Uh, So Paul then anticipates a question of God failing his promises. Since all of Israel doesn't believe Christ, does this mean that God has failed them in his promises of redemption to them? And this is a really important question for Paul to address because if God's promises failed Israel, then how can we trust that his promises will not fail us? So it's really important that he understands that all the beautiful promises that Linda Ruth spoke to us about last week, you know, not being able, never being separated from Christ, we, we need to be able to fully grasp those and to fully hold on to them. So Paul wants to make sure that we can. Um, so he sets about to answer that in verses 6 through 13, so that our best faith can rest on the sure foundation of God who fulfills his promises. All right, so I'm going to read 6 through 13. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Paul gives us this distinction here between those who are Israel because they're biologically related to the people of Israel, um, to Abraham, and those who are Israel spiritually, because they have faith. In verses 6 through 13, he uses two examples for us from the Old Testament scriptures. One is Isaac and Ishmael. The second is Jacob and Esau. And Paul shows us that even as far back as Abraham, there was a distinction, excuse me, between biological children and the child of the promise. So in Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah get tired of waiting for God. God had promised them a child, but they're like, oh, it's too long to wait. So Sarah has this idea for Abraham, her husband, to sleep with Hagar, her maidservant, and get her pregnant, because that's how they'll have a child. Um, So Abraham agrees, gets Hagar pregnant. The son of that union, Ishmael, is born and now an heir to Abraham. But God makes it clear in Genesis 17 that this is not what he meant when he said that Abraham's people would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. God said that Sarah will give birth to a child and that this child will be the one that fulfills the promises to Abraham. Um, 
that God uses to fulfill those promises. So Paul uses this example to show that just being biologically related to the founder of the Israelites didn't mean that Ishmael was part of God's people. But someone could say, well, but they had two different mothers. You know, Ishmael's from Hagar. Sarah is um, Isaac's mother. So that's why Ishmael wasn't part of the promise, because he wasn't born to Abraham's wife. So Paul gives us another example from scripture. This time, two children born to the same mother and father, Jacob and Esau. They were even in the same womb at the same time. Um, And before Jacob and Esau were even born, they hadn't done anything to their record. Um, Rebecca, their mother's given this prophetic word from the Lord in Genesis 25, that the older will serve the younger, which is, this is a flip-flop of the cultural birthright at the time. So in this example, Esau, the older brother, he goes on to despise his birthright. Jacob, the younger, the schemer, schemes it and steals it from him. And Esau, biologically just as much a child of Abraham, goes on to become the nation of Edom and is excluded from the family of faith. He's not numbered among the patriarchs. And like Ishmael, he becomes a totally different people group from the Jewish people. So I obviously have to address this text, Jacob, I loved, and Esau, I hated. Paul's quoting Malachi 1, 2 through 3 here. And this sounds really terrible to the modern reader. I mean, it does to me. And maybe it did to the original readers too. I don't know. But at least they had the context of this Hebrew idiom. So it's a um, loved, hated language that essentially meant loved so much that by comparison, the other seems hated. Um, it's a comparative language. And Jesus uses this in Luke 14, 26, when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his, their own life, such a person, person cannot be my disciple. So Jesus doesn't mean literally to hate our families or ourselves, but to prioritize serving him and his kingdom over our families, over our own needs. Um, And so in the case of Jacob and Esau, it means that God chose Jacob to rule over Esau for God's own reasons, his own purposes. He prioritized one over the other. Paul makes his point clear. When God promised redemption to the Jewish people, he didn't mean that each person related to Abraham would spiritually be part of that redemption. He meant that those who were given faith to believe the promises would be part of that redemption. Therefore, God's not a liar. We can trust that his promises will stand true. But this leaves us with a bad taste in our mouth. Why did God choose one person over another? Why did he essentially reject one and include another? Why Jacob over Esau? Neither of them had particularly high character. We naturally questioned God's justice. Does he really know what he's doing? Is he being fair? Tim Keller says that these truths are easy to understand, but hard to accept. It just feels so wrong to us, to me at least. But like Linda Roos said last week, I've come to a place of believing that predestination is true because I think this is what scripture teaches, even though it's hard and I don't like it. Um, and I want you to know that it still is really personally painful for me, even though intellectually I can assent. Um, I have family members that I love dearly who have died without professing Christ, including my beloved Gammy, my mom's mom. So if you are struggling emotionally with these truths, I am right there with you. And remember that Paul said 
that he has people that he loves so much he wishes he could swap salvation with them and he's right there emotionally with us too the encouraging news of this chapter is that paul says we can trust that god is completely merciful and completely just and that his promises won't ever fail despite it being hard for us to grasp and i think paul does give some helpful answers here in the rest of this chapter about god's justice he doesn't answer it with the full details that i would want um <laughs> yeah sorry i want the whole story give me spell it out <laughs> um but he does give us a right perspective so let's dig into verses 14 through 29 and i'm going to break it up i'm going to do 14 through 23 first what shall we say then is there injustice on god's part by no means for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So in verses 14 through 18, Paul is quoting God in Exodus 33, when God says to Moses that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. It is his choice. Wait, weren't we just talking about justice? Wasn't that the question that Paul brought up? Um, why is Paul switching to mercy here? Um, it's because they're so linked. So we need to go back and remember that we're in Romans 9. So this comes after Romans 1 through 8. So what have we learned in Romans 1 through 8 that can help us? We um, have learned that we all sin against God. We run away from God. We all deserve his wrath and judgment. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is why those two other Romans passages are quoted in your booklet. Um. If we can do nothing to earn our salvation because we are sinful and totally inept at saving ourselves, then our salvation is a mercy. And if it's totally free, then isn't God free to bestow mercy on whomever he chooses? Tim Keller says that if God owes no one salvation, since it's a free gift, then he is free to give it to all, to some, or to none. So therefore, God is being just in the way that he chooses mercy. This also reminded me of um, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard that Jesus tells in Matthew 20 in verses 1 through 16. So there's a group of men. They've agreed to be day laborers for a day um, and work for one denarius. So they're working like a full eight hour day. Then the same man hires another group of people for only an hour. And he pays them the same amount. So obviously the first group is pretty upset about this. So they come to the boss saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. 
Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Then Paul quotes Exodus 9, 16, saying that God has a divine purpose in raising Pharaoh. His purpose is to display God's power and to make God's name proclaimed in all the earth. Again, then comes the second half of verse 18, where he says he hardens those he wants to harden. This is hard. So we need to go back to the account of Moses and Pharaoh in Exodus. And what we see in that text is it says both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So somehow both are true, that God hardens and humans harden. It's like we studied in Romans 1, that God gave them over to the desires of their heart. And what did they desire? It was not good, that's for sure. It was total depravity. And Tim Keller says, when God hardens someone's heart, he doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows the person to go his or her own way. God hardens those he wants to harden. And all those he hardens want to be hardened. Paul knows this is hard for humans to accept. We think we know what is best and right. We think we trust our own minds, our own reasoning, our intellect. Paul gives us reason to doubt our own assessment of life and fairness. He gives us three truths about God. And as John Stott says, most of our problems arise and seem insoluble because our image of God is distorted. So the first thing that Paul points out is that we are created. Um, God made us, not the other way around. He's the potter, we're the clay. And we can understand how absurd it is for a lump of clay to be talking back to the potter and saying, no, I want to be this pot or that. Um, But it's equally absurd for us to question God's integrity in choosing some and not all. He can see all of time and history all together, all at once. He knows how every person's story and thread weaves together. We can only see this little tiny slice. So why do we think we know better than the creator of the universe? Paul reminds us of just the vastness between us and God. I mean, it's like you can't even, there's not enough space to show. His ways are so much higher than our ways. Um, And this helps us to stay humble and not to speak about the things that we don't even have the capacity to understand. Now, I want to make it clear that this is not to say that we can't question God. For example, the book of Habakkuk is full of the prophet's questions to God, um, and he's not corrected. Um, It's not to say that we can't beat upon God's chest in frustration with the hardness of life, as Ajay's sermon on this past Sunday, so clearly made known to us that we have perfect freedom to do that. But it's important that we come to him acknowledging our relationship to him, not coming to him demanding that he change, that he fit our understanding, our view of reality, but remembering that he is God and we are not. God's perfect omniscience and sovereignty is one of the important applications in this text for us, I think. When we really think about it, this truth of God's sovereignty should make us content and secure. It should provide comfort. You don't have to fully understand. You can trust the one who does. 
He's revealed that he is good, loving, compassionate, kind, just, and merciful. And we have that perfect picture of all of that on the cross with Christ's sacrifice for us. This is more than enough to trust him. And don't you want to trust a God that knows more than you do? If Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. I was trying to think of a personal example for me of a time that submitting to God's sovereignty and his bigness um, brought me peace. And I, I thought of this time where my husband, Matt, and I were struggling with infertility. Um, and it was a classic, like, you know, everybody around us is getting pregnant. Um, and I also had at that time a really good friend who, um, I mean, she's still a good friend. Sorry, that sounded weird. But um, she, <laughs> my friend at that time, was had gone through just really intense suffering. Um, she had lost her her first child moments after birth. And so, and I had walked really closely with her through this grieving process. So she was just in this intense place of grief and loss. And um, yet she was really clinging to the Lord and to the hope that she had in him. So she was so open with me about her grief and struggling and let me be really open with her about mine. And um, I was at a place where I just didn't understand why God was withholding what seemed like such a good gift for me, um, why he wouldn't let us have children. <clears throat> and my friend said to me, Annie, what if you don't need children? What if this is not what God has for you? What if Jesus is enough? And it was one of those truths that pierced, it caught like a knife, but it brought such peace, such relief as I was able to come to a place of just sinking into the arms of my savior and fully trusting him, trusting that he was good, that he knew better than I did. Um, I, so it was just a really beautiful moment of, of accepting that truth and re receiving the peace that came with it. Um, I do want to say, don't go around just throwing platitudes at people. It was obviously because <laughs> this friend had suffered and I had been able to enter in with her that she could speak truth in that way to me. Um, but the second truth that comes out of verses uh, 22 through 23, um, and that, that Paul shows us about God. And I want to mention here that there is some disagreement in the commentaries, even in Reformed circles, about the exact way to interpret these verses. But I'm going to give you the interpretation that made the most sense to me. So, which, I mean, I have John Stott and Tim Keller on my side, so I'm just saying. Um, but in verse 22, it's important to note that the vessels of wrath are passively prepared for destruction. Whereas in verse 23, the vessels of mercy are clearly noted as prepared beforehand by God. So the second truth is that God chooses some for salvation and he lets others choose their own path of destruction. So Sot says that clearly, he says, certainly God never prepared anyone for destruction. They prepare themselves for it by their own evil doing. So the third truth about God gives us a partial glimpse into the why of God's plan of predestination. Verse 23, Paul says, that this is shows the richness of his glory. And it's a mystery, but somehow God saving some and not all reveals God's glory in a way that we wouldn't see if he saved everyone. This reminds us that 
God's glory is at the center of this story. Not even us, not even our salvation. Um, that's God's biggest concern is his own glory. And that is for our good. It is for our good that the creator, the most supreme being in the universe cares about himself and his own glory more than us, because that's how we are loved and cared for. Um, in verse 24 through 29, Paul quotes a number of passages from the Old Testament to show that God has always been one to show mercy on those who don't deserve it. So I'm going to read those. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Indeed, as he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Israel cries out concerning Israel. Isaiah, sorry, cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. So Paul is showing us here that scripture foretells that the Gentiles will gain in the blessing of the promises. He's quoting Hosea um, in, in 25 and 26, which is a book all about how Israel has forsaken God. They have turned their back on the God who has pursued them and loved them. And they have pursued their own idols, their own gods. They are running away as hard as they can from God. Yet God still loves them. And he pursues them with this intense love and will call them back to himself. So he says that those who are not my people will become my people, that those who are not loved will become loved. Paul applies this truth of God's mercy to the Gentiles. He says that God has always been generous. The Jews didn't earn or deserve his love. So why should we be surprised that the Gentiles now receive that same kind of mercy from God? He ends with this quote um, about only a remnant of Israel being saved. And um, Ellen will flesh that out more for us uh, in chapter 11. So I'll leave most of that to her. But the simple point is that God chose to show mercy on the Gentiles and include them in his family. And he also does that with the remnant of Israel as well. Okay, so deep breath, recap. What have we learned? That God has compassion on his people that he keeps his promises in perfect tension with his mercy and his justice, that we can trust that his promises will prevail and that his character is true and good. And this brings great comfort. We're safe. We're safe with God. This is what is true. I know many of you, and I know there are some really, really hard stories in this room. And obviously all of us, um, are just really grieving and experiencing a lot of hardship and loss with Sarah Gamage's cancer diagnosis and the way that that just communally affects all of us. Um, so I want to leave you with this quote that reminded me of the importance of what is true in the face of suffering. Um, this is from a quote from a letter from friends of mine who are workers overseas um, and they have faced some really hard times lately. There have been deportations, arrests from those in their team, sickness, even a death. And this is what my friend wrote. The truth is always true. It is true on good days and on hard days. 
God is good and sovereign in peace and in war, in times of blessing and in times of suffering. Satan is real. He's a lot bigger than us. He's also a puny little chump who's already lost in comparison to Christ. I love that part. Um, To feel weak and vulnerable is to see reality rightly. Yet for those who are in Christ, though we are weak, our our position is incredibly strong. We don't need to be in control. We don't need to have access to the levers of power. Our good God is on his throne. It's true. Always. Suffering, loss, persecution, sickness, and death are all real. Yet not a bit of it comes to us in any way except as it is wisely and well given by the loving hand of our Father. The truth is always true. Let's pray. Dearest Father who loves and leads us, please help us to grasp how much higher your ways are than ours. Cause our hearts to worship you as the good, loving, divine God that you are. Help us to bring our wrestlings to you in humility, knowing that you hear us, you want us to wrestle before you. Please give us comfort, deep comfort, knowing that the truth is always true. We love you and we beg to see your mercies today. Amen.